Welcome to Coming Along Nicely. We're two brothers, Rich and Tim, who recently went back to school. Every week, we're discussing one thing we're learning in our classes, and we want to invite you to come along with us. You talk about stuff like this, so I'm, I'm going to talk about stuff like this. The ghost of that person will haunt you more than a living person did. They lose a lot of time and energy and sleep trying to figure out what to do. Hey, you're trying to be like God. Actually, what you might need to hear is that you're not. They're just paralyzed. They have no idea what they want to do. All right, all right. Uh, so this week, I'm still in my um, family therapy, family and marriage therapy, and statistics class. And wouldn't you know it, I'm not going to be talking about statistics. Um, We're going to be talking about are those both, going, are those both the same class, or is that two different classes? Two different classes. Oh, okay. Two different. I classes. was going to say I missed that. If if it was the same class, that'd be odd. No, 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 no. Yeah, it's uh, it's family and marriage therapy, comma, uh, statistics and therapy. Got it. Um, which is like, I don't know. It's it, it's hard to hate it because it's very, very important. Um, like even just one of the projects we just finished for the class was like essentially measuring the statistical validity of one of the most like popular depression inventories it's like super simple it's 10 minutes long i think it's called the beck depression inventory two but you're looking at like you know the norm group for that test so who was given that test as the sample size to measure its effectiveness depression has this thing where like disrupted sleep and energy levels and um i'm trying to think like general tension, there's there's a couple symptoms for depression that can overlap with anxiety. So is this test stable enough that someone with anxiety isn't going to be diagnosed with depression if they have those symptoms? So you're measuring all these things, you're measuring the validity of it, and all of that, like part of me is like, this is really interesting. The only thing that stinks is I'm in an online class and my brain just cannot absorb this type of information that way. Um, So I'm just, it's, it's the class that's giving me the biggest struggle, but what sadly it's also go ahead. Well, I was going to just ask before you go on, what is an inventory? Is that like a, a, uh, if I had to guess, is that a collection of research? Oh, Okay, so the the for like the Beck depression inventory, it's yeah. like a that one is a ten minute test that can be administered by a therapist to a client that essentially it's super simple and it just asks questions about depression. I see. Um, like, do you have this symptom? Do you have that symptom? Do you have this? And it's on a scale of zero to four. Um, and that being said, like, I want people to be like, whoa, wait. I'm in therapy. My therapist gave me that and it helped me with my depression. Is that quiz? No good. No, no, no. The, um, the, the BDI has been tested against other depression, um, assessments and has like a 97 validity coefficient with them. Meaning like this one measures depression real good and this one measures depression real good. And when you put them next to each other, 
they both measure the same thing almost the same way. So it's it's a perfectly like valid test. Gotcha. Um, but that's not what I want to talk about. Um, although, you know what? Maybe I'll talk about this. Sometimes you talk about stuff like this. So I'm, I'm going to talk about stuff like this. Oh, the boy. statistics class, though, has gotten me interested with like some projects I might want to do. Maybe they'd be a part of school. Maybe not. Um, and the one I think I've talked about before with you, I'm not sure if on the podcast or not about how I think that there is in high school, there is this like bubble that is kind of formed where if you are in like the top 3% of students, you're super smart. You have this and you, you know what pushback if you think I'm wrong here. Um, I think if you're incredibly smart in high school, you kind of have your path laid out before you. You know, you you know more or less what you want to do. It's higher education and you have some assurance. If you are in the lower 30 to 40 percent where like college isn't going to be the next step for you, there's like career centers like RG Drag where you get to go and put your hand to something and there's a wide choice of things to go and try and do. So you get more experience doing things and through that kind of gain your next step. But if you're in that like 50% of people who your next step is just pick what you want to go to college for and where you want to go to college for and like go get, you know, go get your next career. I feel like for that group of students, um, there's this big question mark of what, like, I don't know what I want to do. And because their step is just their next step is just school. I feel like more often than not, they're just taking more high school classes. They, they're not getting that additional experience until graduation day happens. And okay, I hope you have picked something. And it creates this big like question mark for these kids where they lose a lot of time and energy and sleep trying to figure out what to do because we're not really setting them up for success. So from a statistics standpoint, okay, so I I guess I should start with my thesis. So my thesis is that the more we're able to give high school students hands-on experience with some kind of career um, at some point, the more that leads to them being able to confidently step into young adulthood, whatever their next step might be after high school. Um, so essentially like we have to give these kids that, that experience to test it. I would want to test, um, like people from this 50%, you know, their next step is just career or high school and people who go to RG drag. And I want to create some kind of assessment that measures their confidence in their next step, um, related to like what they feel like they should be doing next. Uh, and then if depending on those measurements, if, you know, the thesis is supported by the information, then trying to figure out some sort of program that we can implement in schools that isn't going to like upend the school system. Um, but that is probably not something I'll be doing by next month. Uh, that's more something I might be doing in the next like 10 years. I just thought it was an interesting 
an interesting thing. What, what do you think about that, that thesis? Well, so I, I think I have probably two areas of pushback, but can I have okay. you, can I have you first one more time, just repeat just the thesis? Cause I want to make sure I'm getting it. Okay. I might not be able, it, it might not be in a thesis statement. Sure. Um, my general thinking is for students in high school, students whose like grades are low enough, they get normally directed to like a career center or like RG drag as part of their junior and senior year. Like at these career centers, there's like veterinarian assistant, baking, welding. Um, there is like mechanic shops. There's IT repair, air conditioner repair. There's like how to cook, like cook and bake. And there's all these different things. And I think that being given direct, ex- like hands-on experience with these different job centers helps students know what they want to do more after high school gives them more of a clear path. Um, I think similarly, if you're in like the upper echelons of the education system, like the top, like 5%, you do so well at education that you know what your next step is. Like you have that clear path laid out for you. I think it's for the people in the middle um, who fall in that like middle area of their next step is just career or just going to school. I think I'm seeing a trend where most of those students are very confused for what they should do. They might have a general idea, but they're not really super sold on it. And so there's like this weird lingering or they're going to school to figure out what they want to do. And there's a lot of lost like time and energy and resources because of that. Um, So the general thesis is if we can get that 50% of kids who their junior and senior year would just be more school because they're good enough at school. If we can figure out some way of getting them hands-on experience doing different jobs, um, that might help some of them, um, if not most of them, form more solid attachments with what they want to do next so that they're stepping into this next stage of life with more confidence and with less like question marks and like just kind of circling the wagons, so to say. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that could make sense. The, the areas I was thinking about. So I don't know. I, I think you're a, probably about right with the groupings um, with the three different groupings and maybe who they are. I think that, it probably is I think it's more complex than just uh them falling into these groups because of their grades, so mm-hmm. I think a lot of it has to do with you know family background and who went to college before and their family, and like even their grades, you know it might not be like I have a question of which one comes first, so uh, from the student's perspective, are they getting into more of like a, a trade or a craft or a, that kind of job because they get bad grades? Or is that more the way that they're predisposed and so therefore they don't test as well in school? So from I, I think that's my first thing I would 
quibble on is like if you're looking at at it from the student's perspective i don't know that it's just about academics now if you're looking at it more from like a group perspective like that that might be correct schools might be breaking it up based on academics and uh you know treating or guiding or directing students to their next steps differently according to their grades it might be that simple so i think it depends on if you're looking at it from the student's point of view or from like a school administrator's point of view that sort of thing and i think that that's more just like you know taking issue with how how you're presenting some of it i think so i have thought about this and this is my second point that's probably a little more substantive i okay so i'm sorry i'm gonna have to give everybody just a little bit of my like story with with college so whenever people ask me like about college about going to school you know sometimes uh, like you'll talk to a parent And you can kind of hear in the tone of their voice, it's like, I don't want my kids to go to school. Sometimes it's like, I'm trying to get my kid to go to school. So what can you say, you know, to encourage them? For me personally, I don't regret the way that I did it. Like when I didn't go to college after high school, I've got no regrets about that. But I just kind of realized over time uh, that. I wanted to, at the age I was at, go back to school. And by the way, I wanted to study something that I never, ever would have fallen into in, uh, you know, like as a junior in high school, like never in a million years would I have ended up in English. So in that way, I'm sort of like a late bloomer in what, uh, in, in finding out what it was that I wanted to pursue and what I wanted to study specifically. So with that context, I used to have like a chip on my shoulder, like a lot of people where they always share the statistic about how, how many times uh, the average college student changes their major. I think it's like mm-hmm. maybe four or like maybe as high as seven, just in my head. I don't know. Somebody fact check me. And I was like, oh man, L- the talking point is kind of like how much time's being wasted, how much money you're wasting, like doing that. But me coming down here, I might have like technically changed my major four times. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is like sometimes it's very minor classification, like it's it's paperwork. You know, you want to take a slightly different course. And so you realize, like, if I change my major, like I can do this, that, that and the other. And so I guess my only reason in saying that is that. uh, I don't like I don't know if that really supports or goes against what you're saying that or I think here's what it is. Okay, so. With a program like you're talking about. For me, it has a lot to do with how how much the student gets locked into it. Like if it, mm-hmm. if it's more of a you know thing that I think some European countries do, where it's like 
ninth, 10th grade, you're choosing your career path and now you're on it. I don't know if I like that. I don't know if, if kids at that age are ready to make that decision that to me, that's just moving, moving. It's just, it's, it's the question of when, like either you make this huge decision when you graduate high school or you make it when you enter high school. And I don't think that really helps anything, but if it is more of an environment where you are, you know, testing the waters and trying different things and finding out what you do, like finding out what you don't like something like that to me would have a lot more potential. That's kind of my thoughts hearing you say it. I I think it's kind of between it's between both of those. Um, Cause I'm not trying to say that, like, I think it's like Germany, like your schooling kind of, highly focuses around nine or 10th grade towards whatever your career path is. Yeah. Um, part of me does really like that. Um, I do think that culturally, like, look at us, like we're both going to school. I'm in my thirties. You're in your like mid to late twenties. Um, <laughs> so I think that will still keep occurring. What I'm more trying to prevent is um, the kids who are going to school and don't want to go to school, but that's the only option that they know because they're in that 40% of like, they got A's and B's in college and, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to go be a doctor, but they don't want to go like flip burgers for the rest of their life. So they're just kind of in school to be in school. Um or they're just like not they're kind of like paralyzed. They have no idea what they want to do. So they're just going to school. And I think if if we don't set those kids up for success, like I hear on the one side, you're saying we don't just want to like lock these kids into a path and they're stuck in it. But at the same time, if we don't give these kids any hands on experience in what they want to do, they're going to lock themselves into a path. Yeah. And just do it. Um, And I don't think either of those options are good. So I'm just trying to figure out some sort of way of giving them more, giving them more experience so that like them trying to figure out their careers at that age is more educated than just like things they've seen in like media or like thoughts they've thunk or like things that their parents or significant others have said um well you said yeah you said so that they get more experience and to me that is it because if i so that's what rg drag is rg drag is they get experience and maybe they don't want to be a welder but they're like you know what i do really enjoy working with my hands that's boom that's a win that gives them more yeah, of a sense of identity with what they want to do next. Then the kids like, well, I, I guess I get, I got a couple scholarships to go to Akron for something. So I don't know. No, ex- I'll just figure it out. Exactly. Like because if I try to put myself in the headspace of where I was at, you know, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, thinking about what it was I wanted to do, I think that. People, or at least this is what I did, you kind of look at the 
you kind of look at the big, the big name of the job, or maybe that's not it. Cause I'm not talking about like a title. I wasn't motivated by that, but, but like, for example, maybe a kid is like, I like animals. So I want to be, uh, I want to work at, at the veterinarian or I like, you know, uh, it's even hard to give some examples. Like I really like video games. So I want to work in video games and what you realize. I think, wait, wait, hold on. I think I hear what you're saying. Let me, let me double check. Like I like kids. So underneath kids, I want to be teacher. I like food. So underneath food, I want to run restaurant. Is, is that kind of what you're saying? But like, Liking food could also be doing a bakery. Liking food could also be doing like food sales for like, like large, like large bulk food sales. And if you like kids, you could be a teacher, but you could also run a daycare center. You could also be like a doctor specializing in kids. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, well, exactly. Because I think once I started working, I stopped caring. Like you realize it's not just about like what the sign says on the building that you work out, you work at, you realize it's also things you said, like I like working with my hands or I like working with people or I like, you know, I remember talking to a vet who was talking about how the thing that she likes is uh, she was at like an emergency, you know, vet center and she's like, yeah, man, it's really emotionally hard. But like these pet owners come in and they're in very emotionally hard places. And I love animals, but I also love helping people who are really like distraught. Like I was kind of made for that. And so that's the kind of stuff you mm -hmm. realize is like with experience, you realize this is the kind of stuff I like to do. And I could do it anywhere or I could apply it in a variety of contexts and it's not just yeah what you said like i like dog i'd be vet it's not that it's not yes. that crude <laughs> <laughs> but that's what you said is like give them experience and i do think that yeah exactly the experience is what like helps you helps you form that idea yeah because i'm thinking when i was in high school i think there was one day where we went to the library and took like a 20 minute quiz that spat a couple jobs at us. And for me, it was either graphic designer or garbage man. Yeah. And I was like, okay, <laughs> that's uh, a good, uh, that's a, actually a strange combination. Well, garbage men just made a lot of money. And had kind of flexible work schedules and graphic designers have very flexible work schedules and work with computers and do art stuff. Um, so I was like, I could see these two, but I also like had my own experience where, you know, I think I fell in that like 40, 50% range that would just go to school. But I like had experience through church that helped me know what I wanted to do enough to be able to take a next step and like confidently go through. I'd hear other people being like, I don't know what I want to do. 
like next. I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I don't know what I'm doing here, even at college. And I, I'd be so not that I couldn't relate with them, but I was just like, man, that sucks. Cause I know what I'm working towards. Yeah. Yeah. And that got me through like 15 years of life. And I, I, I just, I hurt for these high schoolers and college kids who don't get that sense of assurance. And I, don't, and I don't think we're really setting them up for success. The kids who I think, strangely enough, were saying scholastically are successful, we're then not setting up for success with their life, you know? Well, yeah, it, it has to do with the amount of options. Because you were talking about mm-hmm. like the top three or four percent. I mean, who knows like actually what si- what percentage it is? But I think you're. Oh yeah, I don't know those percentages at all. But, I'm pulling these out of my butt. Yeah, <laughs> but you're right in the idea that like if your choice is to go to three Ivy League schools, you've got three options to choose from, and that's not as hard of a decision. Of like, if you aren't quite, if you aren't there, you know, like you're not at the Ivy League level. Your choice is thousands and thousands of schools. And so you're right in your point. I think it has a lot to do with the the amount of options, but also you. So here's the thing. Like you mentioned, well, when I was in school, we went to the library and we took this test on the computer. And when you say that, I'm like, yeah, I think I think I did that, too. And also I'm remembering that on the online class for college, like the introductory, like welcome to welcome to college class I had to take online. We did a similar thing, like a job assessment, like a, you know, I don't know what the, like a a gifts or strength assessment for lack of better. So my point is you're even revealing there that like we did do this And I think that Mm -hmm. the problem is twofold is like, on the one hand, I think that some of this knowledge is already out there. It might not be, it might not be communicated in a way that like gets through to kids. That might be part of the problem. But I also think possibly another part of the problem is that like kids don't care. And I don't know. I think it takes very skillful communication to get certain things through at certain ages. Like that's my other thing about me going to college is like, I just see it so much differently being like, you know, six years older or how, however much older than all the rest of the kids. I, I see it so much differently where, when when kids will just like skip a class or not do an assignment or like sit through a whole class and they're they're not even paying attention i want to like shake them and be like no like you're mm-hmm. you're wasting so much like you're here you might as well just like engage but there's certain things that i i guess all i'm saying is like as you're thinking through this and formulating this i don't think it's quite as Like, I don't think it's black and white. Like, oh, if we can just start doing this, it'll all of a sudden make a whole lot of sense. I think that and and I think that maybe counseling is a good. A good skill set and a good perspective that you're coming at it from, because I don't think it's just 
hey, let's get all kids to take this test or let's get all kids to, you know, because just like surface level information isn't going to get through to them. I guess that's what I'm really saying. Oh, no, 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 no. And I I 100% agree because both of us have said like, we maybe took some kind of test like this and didn't do anything for us, Um, which is where like, if I get this information, like I, I want to push for more than just a test. Like I'm thinking some sort of at least month long process um, and really trying to have to. And like I said, I don't even have the statistical information. So it could this whole thing could just be moot. Um, but whatever this ends up being, I think it needs to be. And and to your point, too, I don't think the kids are going to love it. Like kids aren't going to prance and holler and get on TikTok and sing the praises of this program. It's another thing at school. They're not that they're not, not going to be like enthused with it. Um, prance. Also, I don't think kids have ever pranced anyway. Um, but if it's something that we can why we have them at school doing things we you know, they already don't want to do if we can make them go through this month long process and at least it gets them some kind of experience like. then that, you know, that helps. Yeah. You know? Mom used to force both of us to do things. From the like business number side of uh, of their company and dad used to drag us out to do hands on stuff and I did not want to do those things, but. It helped me think more about careers, you know, helped me think about what office work looks like, helped me think about what working, you know, working more in the plumbing field looks like. And that even just knowing that off of a day, like helps. Yeah. Yeah. And I've I'm being a little cautious in this conversation, but I actually do think like I do see the need for it. And, you know, if you're tuning into this podcast, which is, you know, two students giving their opinions, like my opinion is it would be, would be really good. Cause going back to my story of like, I, I didn't start. So like I found the thing I wanted to study at, you know, 25 or 26. And I never would have picked it at 18, but if I had something like you're talking about, maybe I would have like, I didn't know. I just straight up didn't know that like you wait, you can major in English. And like, what does that even mean? It's not very like, it's not very self-explanatory. So yeah, maybe if I would have had these conversations with somebody or like had the experience, then I, I might have arrived at that. Well, even like, even before where we're at now, you at least like you got hired at the church pretty young and were happy. And that pulled out a lot of like, like your natural talents and gifts. So I think you're like in that 40%, 50% who would just go to college, but because you had experience before you even graduated high school with a career that you were happy with, you yourself got to kind of dodge the questioning and the searching of what do I do next? Like even like shown by the fact that you did go to school 
and then decide to pull yourself out of school because it wasn't necessary. So you saved yourself literal time and money and like heartache because some sort of hands-on experience you had like helped you. Um, and that's more what I'm interested in. I don't care what kids do 10 years after they graduate. I want to help them in the next two years after they graduate. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And like in my case, the experience is what helped me figure out, you know, what it was I want to do. But also it took me like it, it took me jumping, taking really big like sidesteps, like working for a little bit in this kind of work and then complete change working for a little bit in that kind of work and then going over and doing the other and I had like I did in hindsight, I was figuring out what to do with that information by myself of like, why is it I like these three seemingly completely different things and figuring mm -hmm. out what is the common thread between all of it. So I was like processing that information just like myself, which, again, points back to what you're saying is like, how can we get kids, you know, working in quotes and getting experience and how can we help them like process that information so yeah it, i think what you're saying it's a it's a need hmm interesting interesting well hey that i got to avoid not talking about either of my classes um <laughs> i guess i kind of talked about statistics but i didn't have to use any of the terms so that works <laughs> um what uh what have you been learning this week yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Wait. Wait. Hold on. Interesting. You know you didn't say it. Okay. You. I heard. Did it. I? Yeah. You. Oh gosh. Oh, I thought it was on <laughs> on purpose for sure. Nope. <laughs> so, what did I learn this week? That's a hard question to answer. Uh, I've got three weeks left in this semester, and whatever I'm in next is going to be way better for the podcast because the classes I'm in right now. And you've said this before, too, is like, it's just so like amorphous. I don't walk away thinking, like, here's the thing we're learning about. So anyway, for my, my independent research, I'm reading this book. And uh, my professor gave it to me at the, I don't know, he let me borrow it. It's called Erring, A Postmodern Atheology by Mark Taylor. And hmm. I am reading it uh, for my research. I'm about halfway. Well, when a student says they're about halfway through with an assignment, I'm actually probably like a quarter of the way through, slightly more. But I'm, I'm reading this book. It is very, very, uh, I don't want to say dense. Like a lot of times you read a textbook, you read history. It's very, it's a lot of information packed into it's not like that it's very theoretical like it, it okay in a kind of way that only like literary theory can be it's just it's it's a lot uh so anyway where i'm at right now is he is sort of you know chapter one chapter two he's talking about the disappearance of god and the disappearance of the self. And what he's laying out is that 
in a modernist ideal that uh, essentially what he's saying is that a lot of the attempts of people to, to however you want to say, remove God, dethrone God, like he's kind of talking about like humanistic atheism. He is just laying out a case, which others have laid out too, that when you are struggling against like God, when you're struggling against like this other, this higher power, what you end up doing is just inverting the roles. And what Hmm. you're left with is, is nothing. Like when, when you finally conquer all, you realize like there's nothing left, even yourself. And it's actually what I'm reading so far is the exact, it's the exact same argument as like C.S. Lewis's abolition of man, which we talked about like a long time ago. Uh, But yeah, just the idea that, that what causes you to take up this struggle is that you don't, you don't like being imposed on by, by the other and you don't like being mastered. So what you try to do is you try to master the master, but in doing so you become the thing that you didn't like. And also what you do is, uh, and he talks about this a lot too, is like you end up internalizing, um, you end up internalizing the master. So he talks about, and maybe this is like slightly more, slightly a better example, but he, he gives the example in like a, a tale or in literature or something where, you know, kind of like a classic archetype is the person, the, 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 the hero will, you know, betray, they'll kill like their patriarch whether it's their father or whether it's their king you know like they dethrone Mm -hmm. that person and what he talks about is that the ghost of that person a lot of times will will haunt you more than the living person did you know so like you're gonna live with but by dethroning them by killing them like you get not their literal ghosts, but like you get their ghosts inside of you because now you're internalizing. You have this remembrance of the person and what they were. And like, you know, you've always got that in you and that that presence is going to be even more present than uh, they were in life. You know, like in real life, it hmm. was like so it's, dad didn't it's the- want me to stay out past 11 and then you kill him. And then now, like, you are haunted by, like, this larger-than-life figure of dad. And it's like, oh, no, in reality, he just, like, gave you a curfew. That sort of thing. Yeah. So is this, like, a kind of Obi-Wan Kenobi versus Darth Vader? If you strike me down, I'll become more powerful than than you could possibly imagine type thing? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But also mixed with... Um, what's his name? Is it is Peter the main character from Dune? I uh, don't know. Haven't um, seen it or read it. Huh. Essentially, it's like it's he literally goes through like a transformation in the book series, where he ends up 
you know, having to become just as political and just as bad as a lot of the things he kind of fought against originally. He's just better at it. Yeah. And there is this haunting where he constantly is referring back to like, well, this person used to do this and this person used to do that. And now I'm doing it. Yeah, exactly. And he is so like I'm talking about the first two chapters. So this author, he's really like right now just setting up, setting the stage. And he's talking about modernism, whereas I assume just from the title of the book that he's going to go into like, what does postmodern theology look like? But what he is saying is that like, just, just modern, you know, humanistic atheism where it's like, well guys, we no longer live for God, but now we live for, you know, human pursuits, like art, literature, you know, human values, all that he's laying out is the idea that like, hey, guys, that line of thought doesn't really go very far. And he talks. So so I was going to say this, too, uh, as you were talking about, um, you know, having having so many options and being paralyzed by by options. So I'm going to connect this to that. And it's funny how a lot of times these things connect. Okay. But he talks yeah. One of the things he goes through is like he opens up talking about, uh, gosh, what is it? Well, for one, like Reformation theology, which that is like the point in the road where Luther was saying, like, you, you as one person have a personal relationship to God. You know, like it's not. It's not as much like God ruling over the, you know, God sitting on the throne over the earth, over, you know, his people broadly. And there's like his people or like his enemies or so on and so forth. You know, Reformation theology was individualized and he mirrors that it's not just in the in the religious space it's in the like secular space too of you know Descartes his whole I, I mean he was I think therefore I am I think <laughs> therefore I am yes. that's kind of like a loop uh so he's he's talking about you know just in kind of like the enlightenment era and through like modern history he he lists many many examples of like in every realm essentially it's coming down to the self and we are evaluating things based on like I'm me and I can only be certain of, and I only seek, I guess like the satisfaction of things like as they relate to me, you know, and that drives our aggression against other people. Our aggression against God is because it's like, it's, it's not, you know, you're not taking a step back and saying like, well, what am I contributing to this, this relationship? What am I contributing to this dynamic? No, it's I am me. And therefore, uh, I don't know, it's very self-centered. So mm -hmm. anyway, all of that to say when he connects kind of his critique of all of this and his critique of like very individualist thinking 
weirdly, I want to see if I can if I can connect this. It made me think of the thing you're talking about where there's like infinite options. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm trying to think now that I say that of exactly why, why it makes me think of that. So I I think I've thought about before. And if, if any of this starts sparking it, uh, let me know. But I've thought before about how, how growing up Christian and I'm sure that there is, you know, a mirror example of this growing up like atheistic. But so growing up Christian, you hear so much about like kind of one of the ways it's framed is we need to be, you know, more like God. We need to be more like Jesus. And I think, in my opinion, like like growing up i think i'd always kind of had a question about that notion that idea and i think what it is is that maybe the generations before us what was slightly different culturally and contextually what was slightly different was that you were you were grounded and rooted in a community if not a family, mm. you're grounded and rooted in a community. You kind of naturally have these questions of like, what's my role in this place? You know, I grew up in the rich neighborhood or I grew up in the poor neighborhood. But either way, you kind of knew, you know, and you look around, you see the type of people, I don't know, your family are. And you kind of have an idea of like, I'm going to be like them. Or you're like, man, I go to... Uh, this school and our athletics are really good and I'm athletic. So I kind of fit in this community. What's different now. And this, okay, well, and, here's, sorry. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say along with that too, like, you know, up until our generations, like the computer didn't exist. We we've made such huge advancements in technology that have made it, so that for a lot of families, certain roles that would have had to be done by children now don't need to be done by children or like don't need to be done. Um, so we just have more time. And so there's less of like, a, well, I do this for the family. Well, I do that for the family, which is that's part of a even like part of what I was learning about family therapy this week is the importance of roles in the family. Yeah. So yeah. Just, that's what I heard. That's my tidbit. I'm backing out. No. So exactly. So right now we have infinite options. We have way more time. We have way more like connectivity and we have less of what you're saying, which is like, I play a role somewhere and kind of less of what I'm saying, which is like I'm in some form of community where I'm kind of figuring out my place in this place. And so what life is now and what life is with the Internet for like, I mean, especially for like Gen Z and stuff growing up is. We're kind of like floating. So I use this expression sometimes we're kind of like, you know, 
brains in a jar. Meaning like we go around and we're like thinking and we're self-conscious of ourselves and we can kind of get a lot of what we desire and so on and so forth, but we don't have those grounding elements. And so all of that, so here's where I was getting with all of that is that I think it's the wrong approach. So essentially what I'm describing is a lot of like narcissism. Everything is hyper individual. There's little Mm -hmm. friction on like you and your like identity, your role in a larger picture. You don't really have a role in a larger picture. You're just rich, you know, and I'm just Tim. And we have these ideas that like we're just free and we have the ability to do whatever we want to do. It's a very narcissistic idea. And so I guess what I'm saying is I think it is the wrong approach culturally to speak to that generation and say your life's pursuit is to be more like God. Like that, that is it. And does that make any sense when I say that? So you're saying that, that are you trying to say that that essentially becomes warped? Yeah. I th- Maybe not. Keep going. No, no, no. Keep going. That is it. Like, if you if you tell a normal person for most of history, like you need to be more like Jesus, I think what is being said there is like Jesus said, follow me, you know, and with with Jewish rabbis, there was this like culture. What that meant is like you follow me, you see the way I do things, you imitate my way of life, so on, and so forth. And like you're going to become like a little me, like I'm a disciple of blank. And that tells you so much of, oh, so that means you follow like their school of thought, so on and so forth. I think that it's a fine message, but I think it just hits wrong when you speak to a, a disconnected, like fragmented, individualized, and even like narcissistic generation who, who, want to, you know, build brands and they can be famous and they can have thousands of eyes on them. I think when you say to them, and I guess I'm including myself in that, when you say your goal is to be more like God, your goal is to be more like Jesus, you're actually, I think that that message is heard and interpreted potentially wrong. And that gets into what I was describing he's talking about in the book of like the struggle against the struggle against like God, because Mm. you're hearing my, my, my whatever is to be more like God. And it gets back to that, that struggle for mastery, you know, well, like I don't want to be mastered and every, every, Every signal is telling me to be independent, to be me, to be disconnected. So then when you, when you say like, be more like God, that's kind of like pouring fuel on the wrong fire. You know, does that make any sense? I, I think it's a good statement, but it is heard incorrectly. Yes. Good statement. But. If you're already, I think to your point, I'm just literally repeating what you're saying. 
you're saying to a generation that wants to be masters in themselves, serve no one. And like, this isn't like a, we hate Gen Z. Like every generation has its own, its own little fight. Um, but if you say to people who are trying to be masters of themselves, you know, be subservient to no one, be like God, God is the ultimate role model of subservient to no one. And so that's what they idolize in God. Is that what you're saying? To me, it's about authority and about about power. Like we are raised. And yeah, exactly. I'm not saying it's a generational thing. I'm saying the way that the world increasingly works, like you grow up without any good or bad authority. You grow up without a lot of friction. You grow up without a sense of here's my role in my family. Here's my role in my community. And so therefore, we don't understand like the idea of God as an authority who is all powerful. And when we say, therefore, you know, your, your goal in life is to be more like God, be more like Jesus. I just think the wrong things are heard there where it's like, oh, well, God is all powerful. God has like the ultimate authority. Well, I'm going to be even more like that as opposed to if it was, Mm. you know, submit yourself to God and follow more in Jesus's teachings, which, Hey, by the way, a lot of times that goes in the direct face of what it is you naturally want to do, like pray for your enemies. You know, that's that part of it might be a better way to communicate it. And you might step back and say, like, well, aren't those the aren't those the same thing to say to be more like Jesus? Isn't that the same thing as saying, like, to follow his teachings, to do what he says, to do this? And the answer is like, yeah, probably. But I'm saying the communication is off. The emphasis is off. Because if you don't ever actually say that. You're kind of just like saying. uh Hey, there's this all powerful being be more like him. You know, that doesn't naturally to me have anything to do with like submitting, putting yourself into the proper relationship to him, putting yourself into like a relationship of other people like the church, you know, and I think that that is a miscommunication that I see. I'm definitely not explaining it like very clearly. I think it makes sense. But yeah, no, I think you. I think you're explaining it clearer than you, at least for me, especially when you drew the, 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 when you pulled out the difference between be like God and submit yourself to God. I think that's a point you can hit on more because that be like God is cool. I'm going to wield my power in my sphere to make things how I want to make it, which we can do nowadays and people are doing. Right. But submit yourself to God, to your point, doesn't necessarily inherently mean that you're wielding power to make things around you like you want them to be. It might mean that you are, you know, not that your life is miserable, but at the same time, you might be doing for others what you wish they would do unto you. Um, Yeah. And I think to your point, nowadays, in our current political climate, 
the reason everything's so at the end, like just listening to how people on opposite sides of the argument talk about each other is kind of like really disheartening. It's like they are the devil and we are God. And we have to go on our crusade to fight the devil who is a flesh and blood person wearing either red or blue or supporting a stance we don't support. And I think it kind of could come from your point of being, we want to be like God. And so in us wanting to be like God in the power stance, we also kind of make God like us. Um, Exactly. Yeah. And if, and if everyone's doing that, then yeah, we're going to be just as bad as the crusades in Jerusalem where we kill a bunch of innocent people and kill ourselves because we're doing what God wants us to do. And who is God? God is who we think God is, um, which I, I hate to say this. And this goes to me. This goes to everyone. Like Jesus was really good at telling people God isn't like how you think he is. So maybe get comfortable with that. I know it's uncomfortable and a lot of Sunday school teachers might be mad at it. But like, if you start getting really feet in the ground, I'm going to fight someone because I know who God is. Sometimes those are the people who Jesus was like, yo, bro, chill. (laughs) Yeah, I think two things. I think maybe as like an English major and somebody who has spent a lot of time like in the church and in Christian theological conversations i see that it's just whatever stance you take whatever stance i take whatever stance anybody takes we're so like we will do whatever we need to do rhetorically to back it up and it's just Mm -hmm. so rare anymore on any side in politics and this and that it's just so rare for somebody to like change their mind and have like a conviction that they're like, yeah, you know, I actually don't know what I think about this. Maybe I'm, I've never quite figured out the answer to X, you know, that's increasingly more and more rare, but like politically, yeah, I don't know. It's like whoever your like person is who you kind of idolize, they can do a million things wrong and those those million things don't matter because X, but then the person I don't like, you know, we will nitpick like the smallest things. It's just so inconsistent. So like, yeah, it's rhetorically inconsistent. So that's one thing. But the second thing, which is like my larger point. Yeah, you you said it very well, or at least you helped me clarify in my mind. I think that the default position, like if you're born in the 21st century and you grow up with all the technology we have and and everything the way it is right now, the default position is to try to be our own gods. And whether you like, you do not have to be religious to do that. Like we want to be our own master, our own authority. That is a very, at least like a very American ideal in the 21st century is like, I'm going to carve my own way. So, so the default position is to try to be God in our own life. 
And so it's the wrong message to say, you need, hey, you know what Christianity is? You need to try to be more like God. Because the message there is, you just need to do more of the same of what you're already doing. And so the message I'm trying to say is that, hey, you're trying to be like God. Actually, what you might need to hear is that you're not. Like that might be the thing Mm -hmm. you need to accept is that we are here for 70 years and then we die. And there's a lot of stuff we can't control. And that is, so tying back into the book, that's what he talks about is like the struggle against God is really the struggle against death and what, what humanists like can't grapple with is the fact that like we are temporary. And if you like fully, you know, like I'm an artist, I'm a writer, I'm whatever. So I like am not knocking myself. But if you think that, you know, if I think something I write is going to be some people live their life thinking if I can if I can write this great novel, then I'll live forever. And he's saying that that mm-hmm. is what is beneath not just the arts, but so much of our thinking these days is like, we're trying to find our way to live forever. And it's a struggle against death. It's a struggle against God. And I think the message of Christianity that people might need to hear most right now is like, Hey, stop what you're doing. Stop trying to be your own God and like, accept and make peace with the fact that you're not. That's that's probably my clearer way of saying it. Hmm. So no, that makes that. There's my uh, <laughs> my tirade, and that's what you learned this week. <laughs> I knew. So last night, uh, I was yesterday. I was thinking about the podcast, and I was like, I don't really have anything to say. And I was like, Oh, but it's okay because I'm I'm going to be reading that book tonight. And all last night I was reading this book and I was like, uh oh, because there's just nothing, (laughs) nothing to it's like it's extremely hard to even just comprehend, let alone come and be like, here's what I learned. So uh, everybody, there's my there's my philosophy. Let me know what you think. No, I I would totally love to talk more about this topic specifically, because even like I know we got to wrap up. But I was like, man, I could talk about this for a while, not from a place of like, oh, here's my strong opinion, but just teasing the points out. It's just such an interesting topic. And that is the episode. Thanks again for listening. Hope you guys enjoyed it. We'll see you guys on the next one.